But today is a special day because today we are remembering the second most important event in the history of the world, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to read the story of the crucifixion. It's a very sacred moment. And I'm going to ask, as a sign of your reverence, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 27, verses 32 through 56. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those who were with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We don't often use the word reverent, but when I hear these words, that's what I feel. This is Jesus, God himself, in the flesh, coming to die for the sins of the world, coming to die for my sins and your sins. And it leads me to this question, who am I that my savior 
should die for me? Who am I that my Savior should die for me? Now, Matthew tells us the story of the crucifixion, and it's like he brings this parade of characters passing by, and each character is to tell us something about ourselves. The first person we meet is a man named Simon of Cyrene. See, in Jesus' time, if you were to be crucified, you would carry the crossbeam of your cross to the place of crucifixion. It was part of the punishment. But Jesus is weakened. Lack of sleep, loss of blood from beating, the agony, heartbreak of betrayal, and now all the sins of the world descending upon him. So he stumbles and he, he cannot carry. He is physically weak. He can't do it. And so the Roman soldiers see this guy passing by, Simon from Cyrene, and they compel him, they force him. They say, hey, you, come here. You're gonna carry the crossbeam for him. So Simon does. Not because he wants to, because he's forced to. Are you doing something for Jesus not because you want to, but because you have to. Maybe you're here today, not because you really want to be here, but because you promised somebody that you would show up. Maybe even just to get them off your back. And maybe you serve in children's ministry. You don't really want to, but you feel guilty if you don't. Maybe you don't really want to tithe, but you do, and you do it because you think that that's a price you've got to pay to be right with God. How much are you doing for Jesus because you want to versus how much are you doing for Jesus because you have to? They bring him to Golgotha, the place of the skull. It was the place where crucifixions were held. It was on a, a road going out of Jerusalem that would split and go north and south. And most likely right in that juncture of the road, that's where they crucified Jesus. It's a public spectacle, a public place. And when they crucify him, what they do is they, they take that horizontal beam that Simon of Cyrene had been carrying, and they, they have a vertical beam already there. It's laid out on the ground. There is a hole pre-dug. They would put that cross beam in a notch on that vertical beam. They would rope it together, tie it off. Then they would stretch out the crucified person, no doubt having to hold his hands as the nails would have been driven into his wrists. The wrist was considered part of the palm in the Jewish anatomy. And then they would overlap his feet and drive a nail there as well. And then they would lift that cross up and they would drop it into the hole in the ground, most likely causing muscles to begin to pop out of socket, bones to become disjointed. And a detail that's often overlooked on all the crosses you have ever seen, there was usually a block of wood that was placed right about the buttocks. And to breathe, you had to force yourself up over that piece of wood. Death on a cross came from the ebbing away of your strength, from pulling yourself up on your arms, and then the creeping coming of asphyxiation. That's how people died on the cross. And so they crucified Jesus there. 
And this is soldiers. The soldiers are, are doing this. They're just doing their job. They have done it probably dozens of times before. All of these soldiers would have been familiar with death. They would not afraid, be afraid to shed blood or to cause pain. They begin to gamble for Jesus' clothing. It was one of their few fringe benefits. They're just doing their jobs. Are you just going through the motions, not really paying attention to Jesus? Kind of like the soldiers, just sitting there, keeping watch, making sure nobody messes up the crucifixion. You're just doing what you were told to do. You're not really paying attention to Jesus. You're just kind of numbed out. You don't ever think about the impact of your own emotions. You don't ever think about the impact of your life or your job on other people. Not really paying attention to Jesus moment by moment. Now, Jesus is not crucified alone. There are two rebels crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Most likely, they were co-conspirators along with Barabbas. But you remember, Barabbas was set free when Pilate had asked the crowd, who do you want me to crucify? And they say, we want Barabbas to be set free and Jesus to be crucified. And we're told later on that that these two thieves, they hurl insults at Jesus. Luke will tell us, Luke will tell us later on that one of them repents and actually turns around and says, please, please let me be with you today in paradise. But Matthew wants us to know right in this moment, they're both hurling the insults, maybe joining with the passers-by in the crowd. Why would dying men turn on somebody dying alongside of them? Ever heard the phrase, misery loves company? In the moment of death, it's so much easier to turn to somebody who claimed to be the son of God and said, hey, why don't you do something about this? Hey, why don't you get us off? Hey, you, you, you claim you can do all these things. <laughs> How about coming through, buddy, and take us with you? You'll notice these men are not saying, gee, I'm sorry for the things I've done that have gotten me here. Instead, they're blaming God for everything that's wrong in their life. You ever blame Jesus instead of doing self-examination? When something goes wrong in your life, are you saying, hey, God, why'd you let this happen? Instead of saying, did I do anything to cause this? Have I actually made the choices? Have I actually made the mistakes that have caused me to be in this kind of situation? You know, Jesus, you're to blame for the unhappiness I have in my marriage because you let me marry that person. As if Jesus could have stopped you. So much easier, isn't it, to blame God? You see... It puts us in the position of saying, hey, God, you're responsible for my bad choices. And it may make you feel better for a minute, but I don't think it brings you peace. And I told you this place of crucifixion is probably at a fork in the road. The road comes out and goes left, it goes right to the north and left to the south. And, and there are passers-by. There's a stream of people coming out of Jerusalem. It's the day after the Passover. These are people who are hurrying home they're trying to get home before the Sabbath comes and they can't travel anymore. 
You know, these are, these are the people who would get up at three o'clock in the morning to beat the traffic. And as they're going by and they're trying to get out of the city, they see Jesus and they remember, they remember what they've heard about him, that he had said, hey, I'll, I'll destroy this temple. I'll build it back in three days. And they start hurling abuse at him. Hey, buddy, I thought you were the guy who could tear the whole temple down. Why don't you come off of that cross? If you're really the son of God, I bet you could pull it off. And do you hear the echo? Do you hear it? If you really are the son of God, wasn't, wasn't that what Satan said to Jesus in the wilderness? Hey, if you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you're really the son of God, how about jumping off the pinnacle of the temple and angels will catch you and then everybody will believe. Do you ever tell Jesus he has to prove himself to you? Hey, Jesus, I'll believe in you if you'll do this miracle for me. Hey, Jesus, I'll believe in you if you stop children from dying of cancer. Hey, Jesus, I'll believe in you if you wipe out war. I'll believe in you, Jesus, if everything in this world is right and just the way that I think it ought to be. Don't you see? Don't you see what that does? What that does is it sets us up as the judge and the jury for God. It makes it to where we get to pass judgment on God. If you'll just prove yourself, then we'll believe. It's making God your puppet. Now these passerbys are not alone in hurling abuse at Jesus. The chief priests, teachers of the law, the intellectuals, the elders, the wealthy. You remember we talked about them couple of weeks ago, how they are the Sanhedrin. They are the cream of the crop of Jewish culture and society. And, and they are there, they are rubbing salt in the wounds. They are the ones who persuaded Pilate to kill him, but they just can't let it alone, can they? They're there to mock Jesus. They're there to, to make fun of him and to jeer him. And, and listen to what they say. Hey, aren't you the son of God? Why don't you come down off the cross? Then we'll believe. Let's see if God really wants you. He'll rescue you. And don't you see the irony of this? In their mockery, they are actually inadvertent truth tellers. They're actually telling the truth about Jesus. He is the son of God. He could come down off of the cross. He could save himself. But what if he did? What if he did? then you and I would be damned. Then you and I would be left just to try to achieve something that's impossible, some standard of perfection that we can't reach. If Jesus had actually at that moment proven that he was the son of God and come off of the cross, we'd be up a creek with no paddle. Dale Bruner, the noted New Testament scholar, says this, the greatest miracle Jesus ever did was the miracle he did not do. He could have come down off the cross, but he didn't. Why? It has to be love. It has to be. That he loved you. He loved me. And if Jesus had come down off the cross, would the Jewish leaders have believed? Hey, 
Has God already given you ample evidence to believe but you still refuse? I mean, when you heard some college professor or somebody who purported to have read the Bible all the way through and said, well, we all know it's a bunch of made-up myths and it couldn't really have happened that way, have you kind of used that as an excuse to say, okay, well, it couldn't have happened that way, therefore it didn't happen, therefore I can live my life any way I want to? Is that misguided pride on your part? Have you made the error of thinking, well, one piece of information on a show on a Discovery Channel equals truth? Have you actually done your homework? Because if you do, let me tell you what you'll find. There's ample evidence to show there is a God. There's ample evidence to show that Jesus is a real historical person, that he did live, he did die, and he was raised from the dead. You will see that there was this movement of unorganized, unlearned people who actually began a movement in his name that has changed the world. Have, have you actually done your homework? Or is it just easier for you to say, no, 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 no. I'm just, I'm just going to do it the way I want to do it because it's just easier. I can live how I want. I can make my own rules. At noon, darkness comes over the land. This is not an eclipse. An eclipse cannot happen when there's a full moon and there has to be a full moon for it to be Passover. No, this is, this is a portent. This is a sign of something's coming and it's not good when I was studying this message, Tuesday afternoon, sky started to get dark, and then it got darker and darker. And out the window of my study, I could see that the lights, the automatic lights in the parking lot began to come on, and it was a sign that a storm was coming. Well, this darkness is not about a storm of rain and hail. This is about a storm of judgment that is descending. The sins of the world have clustered on this man, and now there is judgment that is coming on that sin. And so Jesus cries out from the cross, and these are the only words that Matthew record. Luke and John tell us some other words, but Matthew really wants us to focus in on these words. These are important. It's so important that, that Matthew actually writes them down in Aramaic, the very words that Jesus would have spoken, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and translated it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's from Psalm 22.1. It's a psalm of despair. And we're bothered by this. I mean, Jesus is God himself. How can Jesus feel like God has forsaken him? Jesus feels the separating power of sin. I, Jesus has seen sin. Jesus has delivered people from sin. But now Jesus feels sin. You and I, we feel in such a, a micro version of what Jesus felt. We feel like when we sin and we sin knowingly, we can feel that separation start coming between us and God. Now imagine all the sins of me and you and the world descending upon Jesus and the wrenching that must be occurring in his soul. You'd feel forsaken too. The apostle Paul put it like this in Second. Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
And even, even, even in this moment, Jesus is teaching us something about prayer. In your moments of agony, in your moments when you wonder if there is even a God, in your moments when you feel like there is no answer and the world is coming apart, in your moments, even if you believe but you doubt, even in the moments when you're not sure there is a God, what do you do in those moments? You cry out to God. You cry out to God and you say, God, I'm not even sure what's going on. I'm not even sure if you're there, but I'm still gonna cry out to you. This is the cry of Job. This is the cry of David. This is the cry of the Psalms. When your pain overwhelms you, will you still cry out to God? And after this, there is a tender moment. It's real interesting. All the people that we meet before this moment, they're, they're not people we wanna be like. But watch what happens. This is the first person we meet after Jesus makes this cry. It's somebody whose name we don't even know. And he, he takes a sponge and he soaks it in some, some wine vinegar. And then he, he puts it on a stick and he lifts it up. Now here's something that you probably have never really conceived because most of the pictures you've seen of the cross so Jesus, show Jesus lifted way high up, about 20 feet off the ground. That would not have been the case. Jesus' feet were probably no more than two, three feet off the ground. That's all. So it'd been easy for him to find a stick and put, put that sponge, offer it to Jesus as an act of kindness to say, here's something to drink. I know you've gotta be thirsty six hours. Nothing to drink, you're in pain, you've had a lot of fluid loss. Will you do something kind for Jesus? It's real interesting. Every day, every day, I ask my wife, how are you? Whenever I talk to my kids, I ask them, how are you doing? But lately, God has convicted me that I, I rarely ever ask God how he is doing. I, I never ask God, how's it going? And when I do, when, when I get this right, my heart starts to hear what God's heart feels. I, I start to feel the joy of a student accepting Jesus as Savior. I start to feel the heartbreak of a war that's unjust and unfair. I, I can feel the outrage, the anger of God at people who use his name for their own purposes. And, and, and here's something else. When I, when I talk to my wife and I said, how are you? And she tells me, then, then I often will ask, how can I help? When my kids share their problems, I say, how can, how can dad help you? And when I pause and ask God, what's going on with you? God, how are you? And God shares, then, then isn't it a good response to say, well, God, how can I help? And then with a loud cry, Jesus dies. And the way Matthew tells it, in the other gospels, it's not a, the death has snuck, it's not that death has snuck up on him, it's that Jesus lets go. It's the ultimate moment of trust. 
And then Matthew tells us right after this that the veil in the temple is torn in two. Most likely he's referring to the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the court of Israelite men. It would have been a veil that would have been 30 feet wide, 60 feet tall. Only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies. No person had ever seen it except for the high priest, whoever was serving. But now it's, it's ripped into, everybody can see in. And now it's like God himself is saying, look, the old temple system is done. There's not going to be any more need for animal sacrifices. You don't have to come here to worship. Now what matters is that my son has died on the cross. Now there's not going to be anything that separates you and me if you will accept my son. And then there's this other odd sign that Matthew gives us. There's an earthquake. The Jewish Talmud and the Jewish historian Josephus both affirm that there was an earthquake in Jerusalem in 30 AD. Do your homework. It's historical. Three sources attest. But Matthew gives us this other odd detail. None of the other gospels mention it. How, of course, the rocks split and the earth shakes, but the tombs crack open. And the holy people, the righteous ones, come back to life. And after Jesus' resurrection, they go into Jerusalem. They're seen by many. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and even if you are, we have to admit, that's strange. It's strange. And why does Matthew call our attention to this? Because Matthew knew all of these people who had died had never seen Jesus. All of these righteous ones who had lived thought one day a Messiah is coming. They didn't know all the particulars. They didn't understand all the theology. They just lived in hope and they died in hope. And God honored their hope. Are you living in the hope of Jesus? Maybe you went to the doctor this week and everything came back horrible. Maybe you're in the middle of a situation that just feels like there's no good end. Maybe you're in this valley of the shadow of death and it just feels so dark. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I want to ask you, are you living in the hope of Jesus where you can actually say, I don't know how this is all going to turn out. It may not all get fixed in my lifetime. We may not be able to get it all worked out. I may not get my miracle here on earth, but I'm going to live in the hope of Jesus just like these people who died. And then they got to experience resurrection. And one day I'll get to experience resurrection. One day because Jesus was resurrected, I get to be resurrected. And that is going to be the most amazing experience of my life. I'm going to live in that resurrection hope, in that resurrection power. Now you remember the first people we met at the cross, the soldiers. You remember them? Just doing their jobs, not paying much attention to Jesus. Six hours later, it changes. We, we're told that there is a centurion there. Think chief master sergeant. He was in charge. He was there to make sure everybody did their job. But he, and Matthew makes sure we, makes sure we know, the soldiers with him, when they see everything that has happened, they are terrified. 
What terrifies a professional soldier? What terrifies a man who has beaten other people, who has taken life, fought in hand-to-hand combat, has crucified other men? What makes them terrified? Was it the earthquake? Was it the darkness? Was it actually seeing in that moment who Jesus really is and thinking, oh my God, we've crucified the Son of God? They all say, surely he was the son of God. The first people to believe after Jesus dies are pagan, Gentile, Roman, oppressive soldiers. They finally saw who Jesus really was. What about you? You see who Jesus really is? That he's not just some misguided teacher who stumbled into death. That he's not some perverse soul who had a death wish. That he actually is the son of God come to save the world from itself, from its own failures, tragedies, mistakes, and sins. Maybe today it's coming together for you for the first time. And it's time for you to say, surely Jesus is the Son of God. And if he is the Son of God, then that means I need him to forgive me, to come into my life, to save me. Now, the story's not over. All the Gospels tell us this, that there at the cross, Matthew tells us at a little distance, there's a group of women. We don't know all of who the women are, but Matthew gives us three names. They must have been important to the first readers of Matthew's gospel. Mary Magdalene, from whom Jesus cast out seven demons, and what peace she must have known that day. There is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. That's all we know about her. And then there is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Don't you remember? Her name is Salome. She's the one who showed up and said, hey, can one of my boys sit at your right and one of them sit at your left? Can one of them be vice president and the other secretary of state? They're such nice boys. But I want you to see what Matthew tells us about them. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. What are the two things a disciple really does? They follow Jesus. And and if you translate the last part of this verse, this phrase, literally, it says, they served his needs. What, what, What does a disciple do? They not only follow Jesus, they serve Jesus. What are the women there doing They're following to the bitter end. They're still there to serve. Where's Peter? Where's James? Where's Andrew? Come on, guys. Matthew, where are you hiding out? Simon, the zealot, where are you at? You said you're not afraid of the Romans. Come on, man. Thomas, Thomas, where are you at? Come on, guys. This this reminds me that if I claim to be a Christian, if I claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, you have to ask yourself, am I serving 
am I following? Am I really serving? Am I really following? Or do I just like wearing the badge? It's a parade of characters. Do you see yourself in the parade? I want you to ponder this. Who am I that my Savior would die for me? Well, I'm the one loved by God. I'm the one loved by God. And so who did Jesus die for? Well, guess what? He died for Simon. And he died for the soldiers. And he, he died for the passersby and the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the, the elders. He, he died for the kind man with, who offered him some wine. He, he died for those people who were not even aware of who he was, just hoping for him to come one day. He died for the women who followed. He even died for the disciples who ran away. Whoever you are in this parade, Jesus died for you because he loves you and because he wants a relationship with you. And if it cost him his life and the pain of bearing the sins of the world, he still would do it for you. And so today, I'm going to ask you to do something different. It's not something we normally do. And there will be a set of instructions for those of you who claim to be a follower of Jesus and for those of you who, who are still thinking about it. First of all, if you're a follower of Jesus, I think on this day, this day before Sunday before Easter, it's so important for us to actually give thanks to God. And so in a minute, after I pray, we're going to stand, we're going to sing, and you've been through this, you've, you've experienced this before, but I want you to do something different this morning. If you're physically able, and if you are willing, I don't want you to do it because somebody else does it. I don't want you to do it because other, you see everybody else, I just want you to do it because you feel it. Everybody get this? And you can do it at campuses as well. I want you, during this song, just to come and stand before this altar and simply pray this simple prayer that goes like this, thank you for being the Savior who died for me. Now, why am I asking you to do that? So that, so that we can have a big spectacle? Of course not. I'm asking you to do it because, you know, sometimes it's too easy just to sit there and say, thank you, Jesus. I want you to put some feet to that. I want you to put some energy to that. I think it will help you. I'm not asking you for me or for anybody else. I think it will help you. And if you're watching online, all you need to do in that chat box is go ahead and type. It's so simple. Just type, thank you for being the Savior who died for me. But don't do it because somebody else is doing it. But do it because you feel it. Because you sense it. I'm not trying to pressure you. Now, maybe you're not a believer and you're here today. Suddenly, something starts to come together, and I believe this is true for many of you, some of you even watching online, and what you finally are getting is that Jesus really is who he said he was. And today, you need to actually take that next step of faith, and you need to accept him as Savior and Lord. You need to say, okay, I get it. You are the Son of God, and that changes everything and so during this song, if you're here at, at Loring Mill, then you go to the next step room. We've got some pastors there who will talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. And if you're at the campuses, there will be a pastor there who will be at the front standing, and that pastor will talk to you about what it means 
to follow Jesus. And if you're watching online, all you have to do is say, I need to have a conversation offline. And we'll set that up. It may take us a minute or two, but we'll get there. This is a time for all of us to think about who am I that my Savior should die for me? You're the loved one of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am just so amazed that you love us so much. We who fail you so often and we see ourselves in this story We are so thankful. So Heavenly Father, today, I simply ask for the gift of gratitude for those of you, for those of us who believe. And I pray, Heavenly Father, for those who've not yet taken that final step of having the relationship with you, that they would do that today and accept Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. Thank you for being the Savior who dies for me for us all, because you love us. In his name I pray, amen.